Today's scripture is from Psalm chapter 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I will go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. It's a good morning, and I'm so thankful to be with you and worshiping. If you're new to Liberty Fairmount, welcome. You can see that we uh, do things together here. Um, we have been uh, doing things together as far as the sermon series is concerned. We decided uh, early on that we would start to track along with the same passage that we do uh, cover on Sundays uh, in our home meetings, which is a great way to get connected throughout the week. It's a way that we know and care for one another in the midst of busy life in Philadelphia. And so... What you hear now, uh, if, if you're in a home meeting, you'll have a chance to sort of drill down deeper. And uh, if you're not in a home meeting, you should try one out. It's a great way to talk to some friends and meet some new friends to uh, think through what the gospel means to us. We are, um, we've been doing a series called Relationships. A Mess Worth Making, and one of the resources the home meeting leaders have is a book by the same name by Tim Lane and Paul Tripp. And there are lots of things, because we value community, one of the things that we're committed to is just taking the roadblocks, identifying what the roadblocks are that would get in the way of us being a community in Christ, and just knocking them down, getting them out of the way so that we can travel very freely down that road together in the gospel of peace that we have. Um... And so we've been looking at various things, and this week we're going to look at hope as one of the things, a lack of hope is one of the things that can actually get in the way of us relating well to one another. And we have such reason for hope in the gospel. And so we're going to be looking at that. I was thinking about, I was thinking about this and how to open, and I realized that um, Christians often think about hope in different ways that aren't necessarily the way that we see here or the way that the gospel would prescribe for us. And so I wanted to tell you that uh, my family and I are, are wrestling with a project together. We have a project at home. 
And uh, we noticed we're, we lived a long time in New York City. In New York City, uh, people are great for having a critical faculty about everything. You know, you can sort of look at things and criticize and understand critically how to tear things apart with your words. And the problem with that is, is that it can spill out into bitterness very easily. It can spill out into um, just, just kind of an entrenchedness in overcritically, uh, speaking in an overcritical way. And so I was, because we talked about words earlier as one of the roadblocks in, that gets in our way of relationships, I've been thinking about my words and my family's words. And we noticed, you know, this is true of us. This, this overbite of New Yorkers to be overly critical has sort of descended upon our home. And we noticed ourselves talking in a very negative way when we didn't have to. So, for example, I was driving along with Ezra and taking the kids to school. And there was a song that came on the radio. And it's so, such a pitiful song. I really hate the song. I've listened to it for like tw- 10 times, 10 days in a row. And I just, uh, I was tired of it. And I said to him, oh, Ezra, that song is awful. Please turn it off and find another. And, uh, and we had already decided together that we were going to try to aim at positivity, like coming at things a positive way. And I said, wait, rewind. Ezra, find another awesome tune to listen to for me right now, would you? And so we were trying to come at this, but we realized that there's nuance to it, that you can't just try to like well up positivity. And the scripture is very balanced in that. You know, there are Proverbs that talks about not singing songs to a heavy heart. Right? So we have to have balance, and we just can't come at it. I was, um, after I took up this project, I went into a McDonald's one morning for a, a number two with a large coffee. And uh, so I had my number two breakfast, and the woman behind the counter was like, super positive. She was like, hey, how are you? Would you smile? Ha! And, I, you know, she was a little intimidating. I respected what she was trying to do because we're trying to do it too. But there was something about the way she went after that, that was a little unsettling for me. And I began to think about Jim Carrey, who as a comedian, and in his early comedian days, he was on a show called In Living Color. And uh, one of the skits that he did was Happy Guy. And if you've seen Jim Carrey in those early skits, he has a a thing where he can dislocate his shoulder. And he goes, he throws his arm, and it's like back behind his neck, and he puts himself out there, and he's walking along. And he said, I'm Happy Guy. And he was just this over-positive guy who was really happy. And, you know, we talk about people wanting to tunnel under the streets just to avoid him because he was too nerve-wracking. He was too positive. When we come to living out of the hope in the gospel, we're not talking about those things. We're actually talking about something much more realistic, something much different, something much deeper, something much more abiding when it comes to our hope. So I want to I look at the why and how a Christian hopes, the why and the how a Christian hopes, and we're going to look at a few things under those. We're going to look at, friends, there's a reality to spiritual dryness. Some of you might not have heard that before. Some of you might feel guilty about being spiritually dry. There's reality, spiritual dryness. There's a savior of spiritual dryness. And then there's a method for dealing with spiritual dryness, and we see it here. And now it's it's fairly profound, and it might make you a little uncomfortable, but that's That's what we've got to follow. We've got to follow in the steps of our Savior who entered into uncomfortable things, deeply uncomfortable things, so that we can come to him now and learn from him. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we ask, we acknowledge our dependence upon you. We need you. Oh, we need you so desperately. 
that our relationships need you, that there is nothing that we can do to love one another well outside of Jesus and being in him. Thank you, Jesus, for standing in for us. And thank you for securing our relationship with you so that our relationships with one another might uh, look differently than they look in the world. Continue to do that among us now as we uh, ponder your truth anew. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, friends, there's a reality to spiritual dryness. As Christians, we can go through times where it seems like God is far away. As Christians, we can go through times where it seems like God is far away. Um, Like we're dying from thirst. He calls himself living water, and yet it can seem like we're dying of thirst. Like we can't drink him. Like he can't be nourished by him. He's not there. It's like... He who is our living water is not there for us experientially to quench our thirst. Now look at verse 1. As the deer pants. How many of you have grown up in Pennsylvania? Quite a number. I have too. You know, if you don't do it yourself, you know somebody who hunts deer. Right? What do you know about deer? Do they pant for water? No. No. They're well hydrated. They know where the streams are. They stay right there. It's like, I'm thirsty. I'm going to go drink in my stream. For a deer to pant for water, it has to be dying of thirst. Now, what should surprise you about this? This is the cry of a believer. This is a cry of a believer. Like I'm dying of thirst, I'm dying for your presence, Lord. I'm dying for you to quench my thirst. I'm thirsting after you. So, It's likened to a believer who doesn't sense, isn't refreshed by God's presence. Now, when you first, if you, you know, if you, if you don't know Christ and you're spiritually searching and you come to know him, I'm telling you right now, many people don't hear this before they come into faith and they get really discouraged because when you first come to to see Jesus, you come to know him, everything's really exciting. It's like the girl behind the counter at McDonald's, she's really happy and you want to tunnel under the street. (laughs) with all of that excitement. But the reality is, is that you will experience some spiritual dryness. It doesn't say anything about you. It's actually something normative for us. Look at the believer here saying, as the deer pants for water, as as the creature who knows where water is, I'm longing after you. I'm panting after you. Derek Kidner, who is... um, has a great little commentary on the Psalms. If you ever want to experience um, how to pray, the Psalms are a great way to do it because they were written as the church's hymn book. You know, the hymns that we sang, we know some of them by heart. For, For centuries and even millennia, God's people sang through the Psalms as their hymns, as their prayers, and they prayed them. And Derek Kidner is a commentator. He has these little two volume paperbacks. If you ever want to just, you know, one day, each quiet time that you have during a day, go through one of the Psalms and look a little bit through his commentary. He knows grace and he knows Jesus and he reflects on the Psalms through that. It's a really uh, special way to have a devotion. It's a little bit more intense. You have to be a little bit more dedicated to it, but it's a great resource. Anyway, he writes... The psalmist seems to have in mind the slower agony of drought. And he he references some other places in the Hebrew scriptures where that's true. Joel 1.20 reads this, Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. 
And it's a condition that grimly is depicted in Jeremiah 14, 1 through 6, where it's a withered landscape and dazed and dying creatures. This is what Jeremiah 14, 1 through 6 says. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns, and her gates languish, and her people lament on the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem goes up, and her nobles send their servants for water, and they come to cisterns, and they find no water, and they return their vessels empty, and they are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads because of the ground that is dismayed. Since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the fields forsake her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for the air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. The psalmist is, is picturing that kind of drought spiritually for somebody who believes. And that might be shocking for you. Because a lot of contemporary culture looks at Christianity as a solution to our personal problems. And so you come to Jesus and you come to the gospel as though it's going to be fine. My problems are going to be fine if I just put on Jesus. It's not the way that the gospel handles problems, and we're going to see that. And and listen, we're going to cover plenty of method. Remember the third thing that we're going to look at is some method. This psalm prescribes it, and it's important. But I want you to realize... I've talked with people who are suffering. There's some of you who are suffering right now. And as a pastor, I have privy into suffering in a way that most of you do not. You might have no one or two people. I know a lot of people. And whether it's you or whether it's family or whether it's friends, people are suffering. And for those people who have younger faith, they're really dismayed by their suffering and what it means to their faith. I'm trying to make a clear point to you that if you're spiritually dry, there's part of that experience that you should expect. And if you haven't had it, you should expect it. God is the God of that dryness too, and we'll see that in a moment. Uh, Verse 2 explains it further. The believer's soul is thirsty for experience of God's presence, the living God. It doesn't look like he's going to experience the living God's presence in the foreseeable future the way that he writes. And so we see vulnerability When you go through spiritual dryness, there's a vulnerability there. One of the things that you'll notice is that there's a vulnerability inside. There's a vulnerability inside. You're thirsting for God. God, where are you? Where are you? You see that the psalmist cries out, How long? How long for the oppressors? Why are you not coming? How long will it be? So there's actual, in the vulnerable, you know, the vulnerable, being vulnerable inside, some of the characteristics of those, there's a vulnerable, vulnerability to the emotional state of the psalmist. Remember, a mature believer, right? A leader of God's people in worship we see in the psalm. I led the throng, the assembly, in glad praises and shouts to God in worship. And yet I'm feeling this. There's actual spiritual discomfort. Actual spiritual discomfort likens it to a a disease in the bones that's making him die. And he's uncertain of how long it will last. Verse 3, why not the foreseeable future? Why does he not know when God will come and comfort him? He's talking about deep sorrow, tears, instead of the Lord's presence to quench hunger and thirst for food, both day 
during working hours and night, no sleep. Those who don't believe in God, while this is going on for this person, are taunting him. Right? So this, this person is weighed under in sorrow, deep grief. Tears are the thing, only thing that's nourishing me. I'm not even eating or drinking God's presence. Tears are the only thing to nourish me. And yet, he's being taunted. Where's your God? So he's vulnerable inside. He's vulnerable outside. He has declared his faith. And that's part of the taunting, right? He can be ridiculed when God's ways become inscrutable. Have you ever, if you've been in this situation where you're spiritually dry and you don't know why the circumstance you have is on your life and why the weight of it is something that you have to shoulder and where is God in all of that? And you're not sure and God's ways are inscrutable it opens you up to being vulnerable to attack from outside and you call yourself a Christian comes the attack and you say that you have faith in the gospel comes the attack accusation as a side note I'll remind you that that's not the way that Jesus in the gospel talks to you we've talked about that before you've got to understand how the king's voice speaks to you so there are deep sorrows he's vulnerable on the outside some of the characteristics is vulnerable in the way that you live your life of faith. And God's ways often become inscrutable in suffering like this. And when that happens, you can be ridiculed for declaring faith in the midst of the own depth of sadness. Where is God in all of this mess? And people can ridicule you. And you feel like instead of being nourished by God's living water, it's the salt water of your tears. Does salt water quench thirst? it makes you thirstier. And if you drink enough of it, it'll, it'll kill you. And yet that's what the psalmist describes as his food. It's not feeding on God's presence. It's the salt water of his tears. His thoughts are set in turmoil by... An, in verse 6, look at verse 6. His thoughts are set in turmoil by the alien scene. In verse 7 in particular of which he stands where the river Jordan, not far from its source on the slopes of Hermon, rushes among boulders and overfalls. And it's interesting, in the in original Hebrew, the way that verse 7 is written, it's verse 8 in the, in the original Hebrew, the way that it sort of flows out of the mouth as you speak it, sounds, it's, it's, a, it's a poetic uh, pointing to the way that those kinds of rushing waters would have sound. There's captivity. There's separation. Where is God's temple? Where are we? Where are we going? When are we going to get back? What's going on? So there's lots of there's lots of reality to spiritual dryness, but there's also a savior to spiritual dryness, and we need to park here for a minute before we get to any kind of practical how-tos to deal with spiritual dryness. Why? Because your temptation and my temptation will be to take spiritual how-tos and think in our own strength and try to think in our own feet and try to think in a way that keeps Jesus to the, to the periphery of it, if involved at all. And that is not how we grow, and that's not how we weather these kinds of times. We need Jesus center to it, central to it. So let's take a moment and just see where Jesus is at. You know, Jesus was willing to follow his Father's plan and become weak, so that in our moments of weakness, we could receive his strength. I was reading in John uh, 12, 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, 
I have come to this hour. In his life and in his death and his, Jesus, and his resurrection, Jesus represents you before God. And one of the things that would have happened for Jesus as he grew up as a, as a Jewish boy is that he would have prayed this psalm. He would have prayed Psalm 42. He has prayed it. And when he went to the cross, he experienced it. Jesus is our hope because on the cross he underwent the ultimate spiritual dryness so that he could be your living water. When he cries out and he says, I'm the bread of life, we'll come to the table in a little bit. At the center of our community is the table. I'm the bread of life. I'm living water. He thirsted. He went without the sense of God's presence, his father's presence. Father, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He represented you in being separated from God in hell. He represented you. He took judgment. He took the wrath of God. He entered into it. Now, this is different. If you've come from a background where you've heard the gospel proclaimed as health and as accumulation of wealth and as prospering, this is going to sound uncomfortable to you. And I've prayed for courage to say this to you. So you pray for courage for me too, because even now I'm trembling a little bit. But this is the way the gospel works. One of the quotes in the books that the leaders, how many leaders have as a resource to help them guide them in leading the study as we cover these things together. This is a quote in this week's thing on hope, think, uh, passage on hope. The hardship of relationships is not just that they can be difficult. And they talk about uh, the fact of our relationships is that we live, we all have a distance between where we're at right now and where we ought to be. There's a distance that exists for every one of us. It's the already, but not yet. And as we intersect one another in relationships, we bump into one another's not yetness. <clears throat> we bump into each other's frailty. And so they say the hardship of relationships is not just that they can be difficult. The hardship includes what God calls us to be and do in the middle of the difficulty. God calls each of us to be humble, patient, kind, persevering, and forgiving. God calls us to speak with grace and to act with love, even when the relationship lacks grace and we have not been treated with love. Because of this, your relationships will take you beyond the boundaries of your normal strength. They will take you beyond the range of your normal abilities and beyond the borders of your natural and acquired wisdom. Relationships will push you beyond the limits of your ability to love, to serve, and to forgive. They will push you beyond you. At times they will beat at the borders of your faith, and at times they will exhaust you. And in certain situations, your relationships will leave you disappointed and discouraged. They will require that you do not seem to have, but that is exactly how God intended it. That is precisely why he placed these demanding relationships in the middle of the process of sanctification, where God progressively molds us into the likeness of Jesus. When you give up on yourself, you begin to rely on him. When you're willing to abandon your own little dreams, you begin to get excited about his plan. When you're way has blown up in your face, you're ready to see the wisdom of God's way. Our relationships, they write, are not simply designed to make us interdependent with one another. 
They are intended to drive us to him in humble personal dependency. At some point, every relationship brings you to the end of yourself. And with God there is no healthier place to be. When I am willing to confess how weak I am, I am most ready to reach out for the grace that can only be found in Christ. He was willing to follow his father's plan and become weak so that in our moments of weakness we could receive his strength. This difficulty, weakness, strength dynamic is why we need so much encouragement in our relationships. We get blindsided by the difficulty, discouraged by our weakness, and end up losing sight of what we have been given in Christ. Are you lacking hope? Are you lacking hope? Jesus faced the lack of hope head on and he took it and he swallowed it and he died from it. And he rose victorious over it so that you don't have to languish in despair. You can have hope in what he did, but if you don't begin in him, if you don't start with him and his effort on your behalf, there's no way out of this. There's no way out of this. You've got to start and you've got to end with Jesus. It means a lot. And there are a lot of nuances and a lot of clever ways that we can think about it. And we're going to cover some of them that the psalmist gives us. But the reality is, is you've got to start with the gospel. Jesus loves you. He loves you so much that he came into your pain and he took it head on. And when you look at that, it's not just the thing that you look at when you're on the outside of faith coming in. It's actually the thing that you need to grow by. Seeing Jesus, looking at him, understanding his sacrifice. Is it a regular part of your prayer time? When you go to prayer, are you just asking for the things you need? Are you going for the things that God brings? Or are you going after God himself? You've got to go after God himself. That's what the psalmist is after. So let's get into some of that. The method for dealing with spiritual dryness. First, you've got to talk to your soul. You've got to talk to your soul. You've got a reason against being downcast and in turmoil. You've got to command hope in God because of God's faithfulness. Now, it just doesn't start there. One of the things you'll see in this process is that it requires very honest prayer. Very honest prayer. Right? Verse 9. Look at the psalmist's perspective. Is there a reason you forget me, Lord? When was the last time you approached God in prayer like that? Do you think that you can talk to him like that? Or do you hesitate? That's not what the psalmist teaches. Look at him crying out. You cry out too. And you have a savior who cried out on your behalf. It brings you access to God. It brings you freedom in your presence with God. You can go to him and you can talk to him in reality. So is there a reason you forget me? Is there a reason... I'm mourning and under oppression and allowing that this is allowed to continue? Do you hear the psalmist cry? Do you pray like that? Are you that real with God? Do you bring the depths of the sorrow in your heart, the depths of the frailty and the vulnerability that you experience, the inability that you have deep within yourself to make it? Do you bring that and do you cry out to God in that? Are you that honest in your prayer life? Verse 9, it requires honest prayer. You've got to be real with what you're going through, pouring out your soul to God in all of your tears, even though you don't sense his presence. And you've got to pray honestly. 
right? You've got to pray honestly. You've got to uh, cry out to him about the isolation and the sense of loss and sadness and injustice. You know, we've already looked at it. It's, it's like the psalmist is dying deep inside himself when those oppressing him taunt him about his face, uh, what he's faced with without ceasing. Have you been in suffering? Have you had people oppressing you in the midst of suffering? I've experienced that. It's no fun. It is deep darkness. And you feel like you're dying on the inside. It feels like there's no way to gain some other kind of perspective. It feels like there's something rotting your bones from the inside out and it's going to destroy you. But it's a lie. Because one of the things that we see that the psalmist tells us to do is not only do we engage in honest prayer, not only are we real in the way that we approach God in our prayer, but we also need to rouse ourselves to hope in him. Look at where the psalmist says it. He looks at the future. You will praise him. My soul will praise him. He looks at the past. Why? Because the Lord is your salvation. Right? And he looks at the presence. He calls the Lord my God. So whether it's past, present, or future, God is there, and he looks at it, he takes time, he ponders it. He ponders it anew. And Dr. Martin Lord-Jones was a, a Welsh preacher in England in the 20th century, earlier part, and uh, he, had a, he has a book that I would recommend, especially if you're under the weight of any of this that we're talking about. And it's called Spiritual Depression, Causes and Cures. And it's a, it's a, a collection of sermons that he uh, preached to deal with that. And one of, the, one of the passages that he dealt with was very interesting. It was where Jesus uh, was asleep in the boat and the storm's coming up, right? And the disciples are frightened that they're going to die and lose their lives. And so they wake him. Don't you care? Crying out like the psalmist. And one of the first things that Jesus says before he stills the storm is, where is your faith? Meaning, put it on. Use it. Reason it out. Think about who I am, who I've been in the past, who I am to you now, present with you right here, who I will be in the future to you, that I will wipe away every tear, that I will make all things new, that I will give just and good reasons for why I allow what I allow, and you will be satisfied because I alone am good, and I alone am God, and I alone am your Savior. Put on your faith. Where is your faith? Stir it up. Right? Look at Jesus. Look at the gospel. That's part of it. So we've got to rouse ourselves to hope in him. We know, we sing the hymn sometimes. Arise, my soul, arise. Cast off your guilty fear. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Right? It's exactly what Dr. Jones meant. Dr. Lord Jones meant. We've got to remember also what being in God's presence was like. That's why journaling is important. You ever hear Christians talk about journaling? It's writing down what God has been to you in the moments that he is good to you. Why? In the scripture, they called it, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, they called it an Ebenezer, a big stone thing. Why? Because we're forgetful. They would raise it up and say, we've got to remember. We've got to look back. We can't forget. There's an amazing scene in the Hebrew scriptures where uh, the people of God have lost the word of God. They lost the Bible. 
They didn't have any idea where it was at. They didn't, and they, they lost perspective. And they were just living without hope and everything was... And then they went into the temple and somebody found it and said, Hey, I found something. And they read it and began to turn them around. So in the same way, we need to remember. We forget. We need to call each other to remember. We forget. We need each other. We forget. We've got to remember what being in God's presence was like. The psalmist did. He was worshiping with the others. He was leading in glad shouts and songs of praise. And what's interesting is he says, when I'm downcast, when my soul is downcast, therefore remember. Do you see the therefore? Therefore remember. When my soul is downcast, therefore remember. I remember... um, God doesn't always do this, and it might be strange for you to hear a Presbyterian minister talk like this, but and Presbyterians are often called the frozen chosen. But uh, I, I went to a worship conference with a friend of mine, and my friend um, had gone through a lot of, of what Psalm 42 had talked about, and he had come out on the other side, and so he was going through a sense of renewal in his life. And I was going through something similar. We walked into a huge auditorium, and there were 10,000 people. And we walked in late. And when we walked in, it, it was palpable. It wasn't just the singing and the praising God, but we could, it was like we walked, bumped into God's spirit. It was that powerfully present among his people praising him. It was beautiful. I, I mean, it stopped me in my tracks, and I began to weep as we approached our seats. And I hit him on the shoulder. I said, do you, do you sense that? And he looked at me with smiles and tears. And he said, I sure do. Let's praise him now. He's here. And he's here with us. He promises. He delights. He calls himself a light. He loves to be a light in dark places. If you have darkness in your light, he wants to come into that. Instead of tears, verse 3, as food by day, The psalmist commands us to remember the Lord commands his steadfast love in verse 8. Remember the Lord commands his steadfast love. This made me think of Ephesians 2, verse 4 and following. It said, But God, being rich in mercy, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, what does that mean? It means the reality is that if you're experiencing a longing for God's presence and you're in the middle of a dry space right now and you really want him but you can't taste him and you can't drink him and you're, you're longing for him and you feel like you're dying on the inside out from a lack of his presence, do you know that you cannot experience those things unless God is present with you in the midst of that? Cultivating that in your heart. Why? Paul in Ephesians that we just read in Ephesians 2, verse 4 and following. You were dead. The picture was not you were drowning and like your, your hand is partially above water and you can kind of strength it by grabbing. Just all I need to do is grab on. The picture given that Paul gives is we were dead. 
spiritually dead, unable to move, unable to resuscitate ourselves. And he gave us new life. And he brought us to himself. His steadfast love is something that he's in command of. And he's in command of loving you. And he said that I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. And he said that neither height nor depth nor anything in all of creation can stand against my love for you or can separate you from it. That's how steadfast it is. And I'm in control of that, he says. So, and also, instead of tears, verse 3 is food by night. Remember the Lord's song. Sing it. Pray it to the God of your life. You know, there's an, one of the strange things about being around Tim Keller for so many years was that he has an interesting mind. It works, I mean, it's just the size of a planet inside there. It just has so much stuff in it, and he can bring it out at any moment. And he has so many interests. You know, he reads voluminously, and he has an identic memory, and he can see just, it's interesting. So he brings up these little factoids. I'm trying to remember it from memory. I don't have a mind like his. I don't, it doesn't work the same way. I wish it did in some ways. But he talked, I think, if I'm remembering rightly, he talked about uh, an old Norse legend of an army that would go into battle. And the army was victorious and would win simply through singing, simply through music. And it would be so overwhelming and so terrifying to the enemy that they would, they would strum forward victorious with their drummers and with their song and their voices raised together in hymns of victory. The psalmist is calling us to something like that here. When you are despairing at night, when you're in a flood of tears in your bed, redirect yourself, engage your senses, lift your voice in song to the mighty one who has given you victory. Go to God in him. Friends, we covered the reality of spiritual dryness, the savior of spiritual dryness, and some method for dealing with spiritual dryness. In Jesus, you can have hope in the midst of your spiritual dryness because he was dry on your behalf so that you could drink deeply. And indeed, in a moment, we're coming to the table to remember that, that we can drink deeply of him and that we can be nourished by him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that uh, you don't leave us alone that you deal with the reality of our suffering, that you, uh, that you want to enter into the midst of that, that you are steadfast and faithful and somebody that we can rely on and that you meet us there and that you give us resources in your spirit through your word, nourishing us, helping us, lifting us. Would you do that now as we continue our life because, Jesus, you were lifted up on the cross on our behalf. And you broke through the power of sin and death. And you live now to live in us that we might live for you. Be with us as we go forward. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.